Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. sitting in this room right now, which is just about how many people are in the crowd for last week's game between North Melbourne and Narm. Welcome once again to Americans Watching the Footy. This is episode 26. We're about to preview round 11. I'm Ethan Castle. I am Benjamin Castle. We're here in South San Francisco. And if there were two people there at Marvel for that one, there may have been one person at Giants Stadium to watch that shit show, which actually didn't end up being that much of a shit show. Yeah, it was. Huh. Lots of scoring, at least. 34 goals. Two people and one cat. Ryan is sitting outside the room making a bunch of noise. I hope his adorable sounds pick up in the background because he still has his baby voice. I really like that. You know what else I really like? Having good Friday night footy. And we've got that this round. No need to build up and waste time any longer. Let's start breaking down the... Nine games we're going to see in round 11, the last round before the bye. And on Friday night, it's Sydney hosting Richmond at the SCG. Been more than a calendar year since these teams have met up, so this should be a lot of fun. The round opener will bounce at 2.50 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time, 5.50 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time in the early hours of Friday the 27th in the United States. It'll be a 7.50 p.m. bounce in Sydney. This game will be shown on Fox Soccer Plus HD in the United States, but hopefully you all have watch AFL, so you don't have to pay extra for Fox Soccer Plus as well. Or maybe you'll find it on some streaming site. We won't tell. We use watch AFL, but we're not going to criticize you if you choose to. We also have no way of telling if you're doing it. Or do we? The Swans and Tigers are as close to each other on the ladder as you could get. They're both 6-4. and four. Their percentages are nearly identical at 1204 the Swans are ahead by a, approximately two hundredths of a percent. That meeting more than a year ago, to which Ethan alluded, was a 45-point thumping in round three by the Swans visiting the MCG. And I think that was the sign for us that the Swans were really onto something with their youth movement. The Swans will be regaining James Robottom from his one-game suspension, and he'll be coming in more or less in place of Josh P. Kennedy, who has had rotten luck these past few years. Now he has a hamstring injury that is going to keep him out for 8 to 10 weeks. But I think there could be more changes than just that coming for the Swans. Peter Laddams has disappointed the past couple weeks, especially against Carlton. And there's a real opportunity for Joel Marty to return after a couple strong VFL outings. I believe he kicked four goals this past week. Maybe Sam Reed as well, but I'd find a Marty more likely. Ben Ronk is another option there for Richmond. Marlon Pickett will be back from suspension. Jack Graham should be ready to go after a toe injury, but they've got a pretty decent list of casualties from last week's Dreamtime game. Noah Balta's out two to three weeks with a hamstring injury. 
Kane Lambert's out two to three weeks with a hip injury. And the big one, metaphorically and literally, Tom Lynch injured his hamstring as well. He is out three to four weeks. Luckily, they'll have the bye after this, so might only need one game's rest for Balta and Lambert. But regardless, the Tigers really have no choice but to go smaller here. So I'm expecting some more kicks toward Dustin Martin as kind of a replacement for Lynch in some respects. Can't really match his stature, but he's proven himself in contests enough that I could understand him taking some of that role. I expect more movement on the ground, though. Some more opportunities for Morris Rioli, maybe, as a goal sneak. That would be nice to see. That's what I was thinking as well. He's done such a nice job so far, and he's got good sense around the goal. Get him the ball more and good things happen. Doesn't necessarily need to score as well. We saw how well he fed Lynch a couple rounds ago when Lynch had his biggest outing of the year. He'd definitely feed Dusty again, if not finish himself. I know you're hoping that Hugo Ralph Smith is one of the people that comes back into the side as well. He's been doing well in the VFL, but not sure if there's going to be space for him this week. Also really interested to see what role Nick Vlostone's in. He's shown his versatility lately and really just which swans he gets matched up with because there's no real one guy with Sydney you look at when you break down the scouting report as we have to stop this guy in particular because they've got so many options. But the fact is the Swans have not played well lately. Three out of their last four games have been losses, and not just that, they've looked pretty lousy in doing so. I've been on the record as saying that they've only had one super solid performance since round two, and that was against Essendon. I don't even think they were at their best against the Eagles, even though they piled it on there. With Vlostone being 6-2, gives him a couple inches over much of that young midfield, so I have a feeling he'll just go to the hot hand. That's often been Chad Warner as of late going toward goal, but more quietly, it's been Errol Golden in terms of handballing. This is going to be my first time really watching Richmond closely in a few rounds, so I'm looking forward to that. I really want to study and see what is it that's going so well for them, because obviously the results have been great lately. I'm excited to break that down a little bit more. The last time I really had my full attention on them was a game against the Demons where the Demons just couldn't kick straight and then still ended up winning by 22. So this will be a good chance to examine what's different about the Tigers now versus a few rounds ago when we thought maybe this is the end of things for Richmond and it's time to go younger. It's been a pretty cool mix of young and old lately for them. And when we report back for our round 11 recap, I'm looking forward to discussing which players stood out to me because they're a different team than the last time I really put them under the microscope. Swans are favored by 11 and a half despite their recent form. Is that more of a product of the home ground advantage at the SCG? Is it a product of the Swans' history against Richmond? I'm not exactly sure where it lies, but I'm not necessarily in agreement with the line. I think it should be much closer considering Richmond's recent form And considering that the Swans haven't played all that well at home, even, they've had a stretch with three straight home games. They've played three of their last four at home now. They went just one and two in that stretch. I think the line is mostly reflective of the outs for Richmond, but I'm expecting Jaden Short and Liam Baker to be able to step up in terms of some of Balta's movement. And they've got plenty of options forward. Oh, from a movement standpoint, I'm not concerned at all with what they're missing from Balta. I think Balta offers more offensively than Baker and Short, but I think Baker and Short can easily get the ball out of their own end. They've done that all year. They've had no trouble doing that, even in the Tigers' worst games. 
Short has been moving around from time to time this year, so I don't think they're going to have any problem there. I'm just thinking about who's going to end up being that extra finisher for them. You got Dusty, you got Jack Revolt, you got Morris Rioli. There's going to have to be someone else in that mix with Balta and Lynch out. And please don't try to make it Jason Castagna Richmond because he is probably your most inaccurate. We've got a pretty typical Saturday schedule format late Friday into early Saturday in the United States. 2-1-2 again. So the early game is starting at 8.45 p.m. Pacific, 11.45 p.m. Eastern on Friday the 27th, 1.45 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. One of those games is the Brisbane Lions hosting the Greater Western Sydney Giants at the GABA, which will be airing on Fox Sports 2 in the United States. And this will be the first real test of the Mark McVeigh Giants. We're not going to be able to have any real definite conclusions after this game, but we'll be able to see what's coming together differently from Leon Cameron's setup. It's really taking them from one end of the spectrum to the other, going from facing the worst team in the competition at home to going on the road, facing the Lions at the GABA, and it's the Lions coming off of a loss. That loss, by the way, dropped Brisbane's record to 8-2, and two, but they still sit comfortably in second place on the ladder by percentage. The Giants, after the win last week, sit in 3-7. and seven. They are currently in 14th, and all three of their wins are against teams in 12th place or lower. They've won just once on the road so far. They'll be looking to double their road win total in this one, but it will not be easy. These teams matched up in round 11 last year at the GABA, and the Lions nearly doubled up the Giants, winning by 64 points. The Lions have won the last three home-and-away matchups, but they lost by three in the second semifinal in 2019 to go out in straight sets, which they also did last year. This is a more complete Lions team than those, though, at least on paper, and at least through the first 10 rounds. And they'll be getting healthier this week with Marcus Adams back from COVID protocols. However, we don't know about Hugh McCluggage's status after he went out in the fourth quarter last week with a hamstring injury. And we don't know about Daniel McStay, who's on the way back from an ankle injury. Should opportunities open up, that means Mitch Robinson might actually get to play and vlog about it more. He already has a video out about his role as the medical sub in the round 10 loss to Hawthorne. It was a lot of fun to watch and just see kind of the travel aspect, what it's like for a team to travel versus what it looks like in American sports. One of the main differences I noticed is that they aren't going through a separate part of the airport. They're going through the same security and gates that just about everyone else seems to be. The Giants are also going to be getting healthier. Lockie Ash, Nick Haynes, and Braden Pruce should all be returning from illness. In previous times, in prior rounds, that may have squeezed Matt Flynn out, but after his strong performance last week, there's a chance that he plays alongside Pruce as his ruck support. Tim Taranto and Lockie Whitfield's status are to be determined. Taranto missed last week with a back issue, Whitfield with an ankle complaint. I don't expect all that many changes outside of the necessary illness returns. A, after a big win in Mark McVeigh's first game in charge, and B, with their bye being next week, wouldn't be shocked if they just gave Toronto and Whitfield two more rounds to recover. And then they could ease them back in against North Melbourne. So basically, they have back-to-back buys after this. They had a really good offensive game last week, obviously. 
Again, lack of resistance was a significant part of that. But how does Brisbane's defense match up with them? I think that could be really fun to watch. How does Daniel Rich get deployed last week? He actually got to handle the ball a lot, got to move things around, gained well over 900 meters in that loss to Hawthorne. Rich lined up at halfback along with Brandon Starcevich and Dave Zorko. Though obviously Rich ended up playing forward some. Could also be more opportunities, maybe in a tagging role for former basketballer Tom Fullerton. One thing that will be really fun to watch this week is how long it takes before they mention that Tom Fullerton used to play basketball. Last week, I think they set the record 18 seconds into the game. In order for that to ever be beaten, it really requires a lot of things to go right. It requires the opening bounce and clearance to go the way of the opposition and for the ball to get into the forward 50 quickly. So if they mention it like before the bounce as they like do that slow zoom in, it doesn't count? I wouldn't really count that in this regard. I think it's really about how quickly after the game actually starts, it gets mentioned. And I'm wondering how quickly after the game starts, Steven Canelia will be able to handle the ball at super high efficiency last round. Looked like maybe the team was formed around his skill set, at least in terms of the midfield, and it worked quite well. It was interesting to have Harry Hamelberg line up at halfback. Ended up having a decent amount of time forward, but definitely a different setup. Maybe that was just more naming your best 22 and, and just sticking them wherever they have to in the official lineup. But Hamelberg did have some defensive time, and with how little defensive pressure there was to begin with, it's not like I noticed him being bad in particular. I had proposed a couple weeks ago that they could shift some of their forwards around into a defensive role because they have a couple of rucks who can do a lot of forward work. So maybe that was just one of the possibilities there. They're actually in a pretty good position after things went so well last week where they'll kind of have a bit of a lineup squeeze and have more players to work with than they have spots. You know, does James Peatling stay in the lineup after his good performance last week? Three goals should probably earn him another round. Unfortunately, Jacob Ware will probably be straight out after his debut despite kicking his first goal. With Lockie Ash returning, likely means Matt DeBoer's out. Maybe they do leave Flynn out to try to load up their, their lineup with their more accurate kickers because Flynn is certainly not that. I would assume Ash gets Lockie Neal duties. I really hope Himmelberg stays in a defensive role this week because this would be a really good test for him. Brisbane's forward line is excellent. It would be a real good chance for him to prove if his future might be as a halfback or if this was just a, you know what, this season's a wash. Let's go try things. And it could end up just being a funny experiment. We could end up looking back at this and say, hey, remember that time Harry Himmelberg tried playing defense? If he ends up drawing Eric Hipwood, good luck, because Hipwood's still got four inches of height on him and has some finesse with ball in hand that I just don't think Himmelberg has on either half of the oval. And it'll also be really cool looking back at this game seven rounds from now when these teams meet up again at Monica Oval, just how similar or different the Giants lineup might look. And hey, the games in Canberra actually draw some people. Maybe there will be more than 10 people there. They reliably get over 10,000 in Canberra and somehow don't at the larger stadium at the showground. Beyond beyond me for that. Maybe Canberra's making a strong case to be that 20th team after Tasmania. For this one, the Lions are favored by 32 and a half. Could definitely see this being way more. If I were betting on this, I'd probably say the Lions will take care of this and much more. I can't see them winning this game by less than 20, but I can see them winning this game by 45 or a lot more than that. 
And I use those two numbers specifically because, because they're equidistant from that line of 32 and a half. I'll be focusing on the Lions and the Giants while Ethan will have his eyes glued to the matchup between the Cats and the Crows, Geelong and Adelaide, back at Cardinia Park. Again, the time for this one, 8.45 p.m. Pacific, 11.45 p.m. Eastern on Friday the 27th, 1.15 p.m. South Australian time on the 28th, 1.45 p.m. local in Geelong. This will be on Fox Soccer Plus HD in the United States. The Cats enter this one at 6-4 in 6th place, looking to finally end that string of alternating wins and losses. They haven't won consecutive games since rounds 3 and 4. It's the only time they've done so this year. The Crows enter at 3-7, and seven, sitting in 15th, though they certainly seem to have turned a corner last week with a pretty valiant performance and a loss to St. Kilda. They ended up losing to the Saints by 21, but it was a one-goal game until the final minutes. It was actually one of the most entertaining games of the round, if not the most entertaining. And they were largely the better team as a whole, but they just couldn't match up against Max King and Brad Hill. So if you're looking for any sort of comparable players for the Cats, maybe you'd be looking at Brad Close running down the wings. And maybe if Mark Blitzovs can get some big grabs close to the goal square, or Jeremy Cameron is able to do that. I feel like the Crows should have a better time matching up against Cameron, but maybe Blitzoff's size and physicality could be too much. However, he's looking like he's going to be the one Ruckman because, as Chris Scott said, every one of them on their list is injured at the moment, and Blitzoff's kind of doesn't fit in that straight-up Ruck role. He's, he's a utility guy throughout the ground. You know why he's got different abilities throughout the ground? Because he used to do steeplechase. That's right. You know who else they could have trouble matching up with? You know, we've talked about how Adelaide doesn't really have a tagger, doesn't have a lot defensively, although I've seen a few performances from Jordan Butts that have been decent, including that win over Richmond back in round five. Butts, by the way, is back from COVID protocols, so they'll be in slightly better shape defensively, but still going to be tough to match up with Tom Hawkins, who seems to have all of his best games at Cardinia Park. I think there's a real chance he absolutely goes off this week. And I say that well aware of the risk of jinxing it. And it's not like the Crows will have their most reliable goal score to try to match him goal for goal or exceed him because Taylor Walker is now in COVID protocols. The Crows are also likely to be without Josh Rochelle this week. He was subbed out in the fourth quarter last round with a cork thigh, and it's looking like he'll be rested this round. One way or another, the Cats are looking to erase the memory of the embarrassing opening round defeat they had last year at the Adelaide Oval. It was a 12-point defeat in which the Cats definitely took a good amount of time to get their land legs back. Patrick Dangerfield copped a suspension in that game. He will not be facing the Crows this year as the team officially announced today that he will not be playing again until after the bye week. So he'll be missing the next two rounds against the Crows and Bulldogs. Then you've got the bye, and then maybe they'll bring him back for the trip out to Perth to take on the Eagles. Could totally rest him for that one, too. Considering what Chris Scott said about every Ruckman being injured, sounds like they are going to give Reece Stanley a chance to prove himself, but as of now, probably wouldn't be playing. He was a laid out against Port Adelaide along with Quentin Narkel. That got both Francis Evans and Cooper Stevens in the lineup. They got Brian Myers in as the injury sub. He only came in those last few minutes. I would think they could just roll with most of the same lineup as last week, but obviously got to replace Dangerfield. 
Could do that with Luke Dollhouse, who, as I've said repeatedly, I love seeing him in the injury sub role. If he's healthy, Sean Higgins is an option. I'd like to see more of Brian Myers, of course. Not partial at all in that regard. Not like I have a cat named after him who's sleeping right next to me right now or anything like that. And not like you have been on the record about how, about how low you think of Higgins. Maybe instead they could go back to Ollie Dempsey. That's another option. I think they could be in for a surprise with that spot because most of the lineup is going to be the standard crew. So I think there's an opportunity there to mix things up. You mentioned Brad Close already, and I don't quite see him as a comp to Brad Hill because, because Hill, I think, is much more physical, much more muscular. And much more of a finisher, more willing to kick for goal himself than Close is. That said, I do think it's time for Close to have a big game after not doing all that much against either St. Kilda or Port Adelaide. Though when he did get involved against the power, it radically shifted the game, part of that 33-0 third quarter run. Looking at the Crows lineup, do they maybe bring Riley O'Brien back in to play alongside Kieran Strawn? Have two rucks instead of having... Riley Philthorpe in that second ruck role? That's definitely an option. Find it likely that Philthorpe will still stay in as a key forward. Made good on some of the opportunities he got last round. Elliot Himmelberg did have a good performance in the Sandful, and there's just this four and a half list crunch for the Crows that has been there for a good part of the season, but is more prominent now. Looking toward the middle of the ground, Luke Pedler, Matt Crouch, Harry Schomburg have all put out some good performances lately. Nathan Schmuck on the AFL in the Mix article said that he expects Peddler to be in. To have that forward list crunch issue come up on a week when Taylor Walker's not available is really good timing for the Crows. That said, I don't know if they can replicate last round's performance or last year's. We know that with the loss last year, the Cats certainly won't be taking them lightly. I'm sure Jalon are tired of alternating wins and losses and are looking to put together an actual winning streak. And while I was really inspired by Adelaide's performance against the Saints, it's nice to come away from a game where you're impressed with the losing team. I don't know if they can follow that up well like they did. Like, for example, in round two when they laid an egg against Collingwood after nearly beating Fremantle. And that's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping for a nice, easy Cats win. And the odds makers seem to think that that could certainly be in store as Geelong are favored by 41 and a half. If it wasn't for Taylor Walker, I would question that. But without him and with Joshua Shelley likely out, I see why they're coming up with this line. I don't know if the Crows can keep up in a higher scoring game. And I don't think they have the defensive wherewithal to be able to stop Hawkins, Cameron, and the rest of the Geelong forwards. If the Cats go up-tempo, if they like close drive it, they should have no reason to worry. It would require a gargantuan effort from the Crows' fullback line, Jordan Butts, Tom Duday, Billy Frampton. And they've put together a couple of good games thus far this season. That Richmond effort was particularly inspiring, but I'm not expecting them to be able to do it all themselves. Last week's midday Saturday game on paper had no business having a time slot to itself. Ended up actually being a compelling game for most of three quarters. This week's is absolutely deserving of those accolades and that recognition. Even with Fremantle having lost their last two games, they still sit in fourth place at 7-3, and three, and they will be taking on the undefeated 10-0 top-of-the-ladder Melbourne Demons, or as they're known for this week, the second week of the Sir Doug Nichols round this year, NARM. 
This one will be at the MCG, set to get underway in Victoria at 4.35 p.m. Dockers fans, and if there are a few D's fans in Western Australia, can tune in at 2.35 p.m. Seems like there were more than enough D's fans in the West last year for the grand final. It'll be at 2.35 a.m. Saturday on the East Coast of the United States. And for those of us here on the West Coast, it'll be at 11.35 p.m. Friday night. And hopefully this will be a game worthy of your undivided attention. If you're looking for this one on American TV, you can find it once again on Fox Soccer Plus HD. We had no idea of the trajectory on which either of these teams would be when they matched up in the opening round last year at the G, when the Demons came home by 22 points. This year, they're both near the top of the ladder, but are trending in opposite directions as of late. And it could be a very different look for Narm coming into this one than for any of their prior matches, because there's a chance that they go into it without their ever-present winger, Ed Langdon. No internal damage to his ribs after the big Terran Thomas tackle early last round, but hasn't been cleared to play yet. However, Jack Viney should return from his hamstring injury, though James Harms likely needs another week on his own hamstring, as does Christian Salem with his knee injury. Seems like their defense hasn't missed him, though. And that's not a knock on Salem or on Viney. It's just their defensive structure has been so tough to crack. But they've even had Jake Bowie playing in the midfield at times, as opposed to being so solidly in the back half like he was at the start of this streak. Remember... The D's have not lost since Bowie entered their lineup in round 20 of last year. They're on a 17-game winning streak overall, matching his jumper number. Shouldn't have won round 23 last year, but that took an incredible choke job that I'm very glad I slept through. I did not, and I was fearful that you didn't either. Fremantle will look a little different this week. Sam Switkowski suspended two games for his chicken wing tackle on Jack Ginnivan. Unfortunately, Jai Amos will not be an option to come back into the team. He suffered a kidney injury that required immediate medical attention in the waffle. Hopefully, he's back soon. Sounds like the sort of thing that could have been really bad. Glad to hear that everything was handled there and he is recovering. A few options to come into the side for Fremantle, especially with them coming off back-to-back embarrassing performances where they seem to not understand the concept of precipitation, among many other things. And would you look at that? There are some showers in the forecast for Saturday in Melbourne. It's hard to judge much of the hourly forecast four days away, but it looks like some of those showers could hit in the afternoon during the game, though the few hours leading up to the game, at least, it should be fine, so the ground should be in good shape if this forecast holds up. Could pick up as the game goes on. Neil Rasmus was the sub last week, could definitely be one of the guys that slots in to try to fill the void that Swikowski leaves. Sam Sturt has had a very good go of things recently with Peel Thunder, Fremantle's Waffle Side. Waffle Squarf. He's kicked three goals each of the past three weeks, and with the production Switkowski had, I wouldn't be shocked if Sturt comes in to make his season debut. Meanwhile, Nat Fife is likely still a week away from making his own season debut. Looks like he'll be spending about half his time on ground forward, which surprises me a bit. I thought that he would be a really good candidate to be playing halfback and run alongside Jordan Clark. Speaking of running, these last couple losses for the Dockers have come without Nathan O'Driscoll, who's going to be out for the foreseeable future. 
While a lot's been questioned with Fremantle in these couple of losses, there's still no doubt they're a great defensive team, and there's no doubt that this is a game between the top two defensive teams in the competition. Will Melbourne perhaps break away from their style to try to counter that Fremantle defense, or will they keep going doing their thing? I would think they're going to be pretty unchanged. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I also think that Justin Longmuir would be the coach more driven to change things, especially with how low they've stooped these past couple rounds. Melbourne are favored by 27 and a half, but I want to ask you, first to how many wins this game? You know, with a lot of games, there's kind of a benchmark, either first to 80, or maybe it's two really high-scoring teams, first to 90. The over-under for this game is actually 150 and a half, which is a lot higher than I would have expected. It's the second lowest of the round, only a point above the over-under for, surprisingly, Port Adelaide and Essendon. But I would think this could be a game that could be really low scoring. And that's where I think there's some money to be made. Might be from taking the under here. I don't see these teams combining to reach 150 points unless something really bizarre happens. I'm almost thinking the college basketball thing where it's first to 71. I'm thinking about college basketball here. This is something I learned past few years going to a lot of Cal games over at Haas Pavilion. The rule of 71, where it's generally the first to 71 points that wins the game. I think getting into the 70s should be more than enough for either side in this one. Fremantle are going to be more driven to play up-tempo, but Melbourne's back line is so solid that I think their efforts will largely be neutralized. I do expect to see 11-0 at the top of the ladder at the end of this. I do too, but I think Fremantle stylistically could give Melbourne or Narm more problems than just about any other team. I think their speed has the opportunity to break down the zone, draw some guys out of position, and finally create some odd man advantages in spots where no other team has had them against Melbourne in a while. I think this is where Jordan Clark's speed could really be on display. Again, having Nathan O'Driscoll would really help because you can put him on one side, overwhelm that one side, and then flip to the other side of the ground. Maybe Michael Frederick could play a bit further back and be an important runner as well here. You talked a lot about how his best game is pressure-oriented. I think you get him running up the ground, and then once you're there, park him in the forward 50 for a couple minutes trying to contain, that could work. He's such an interesting player because he's not a great kick, but he does so many other things so well. He's not just fast. He's got a really good sense of positioning. He cuts off angles well. I think he's the key to a lot of this. And if he can put the heat on the Narm defenders, Fremantle could really make this interesting. That said, I trust the composure of the Demons. And I also don't trust the Dockers to be ridiculously accurate because that's not their M.O. Rory Law, a lot of responsibility is going to fall on you in terms of converting your set shots, especially without Switkowski in the mix. Considering the Gone and Jackson combo, I would think it would make tons of sense to have Lloyd Meek in the lineup alongside Sean Darcy. When the Dockers went to Geelong a few weeks ago, I thought... Meek was excellent. I see no reason they shouldn't deploy both of them, especially against a team that's got the tandem like the Demons have in Gone and Jackson. No reason Lob can't still fill that Tom Hawkins, Tex Walker, Patrick Cripps role. A lot of guys doing that now, of taking some of those contests inside 50. But he got to keep him up the ground a lot, a lot of the time. Got to have him match up against Stephen May. Maybe if Meek is also in, it could really allow Lob to be in that one-on-one constantly. And maybe if he gets made to focus on him enough, 
it could open up some avenues for their other scores. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at Americans Footy. You can follow me personally on Twitter at Castle Media. And you can follow Grian the Footy Cat on Instagram at Cat Named Grian. His follower count hasn't been going up much lately. Shame on all of you. Fix that now. You can follow me at BenjaminHK01 as well, but Cat Named Grian is the second most important here after Americans Footy, to be sure. Though it's been really cool seeing your thoughts, Ethan, on the baseball games you've been covering. We're recording this after a super crazy San Francisco Giants and New York Mets contest. Some really questionable managerial decisions in that one, but that's for another time, though I would love to have Australians to talk baseball with. Australian audiences in general love American sports, and I love having that connection. We have American sports leagues that try to market to Europe just because it's a lot easier to get there than it is to fly to Australia, but there is a rabid audience in Australia, especially for the NFL, but also the NBA and MLB. So come on down, talk with us anytime. Had a really fun conversation with one fan, I believe it was during a D's game, where where I was talking to him about his NFL interest. Turns out he's a Seahawks fan, and we were both kind of fanboying over Marshawn Lynch for a while because who doesn't? I still marvel at the fact that I was able to watch him in person in college. But getting back to questionable coaching decisions, hi, Adam Simpson, and hi, Luke Beveridge. They're going to be matching up this week at Optus Stadium, one of the two games in the late slot. This will be starting... 10 minutes before the other one of those. So it'll be 2.30 a.m. Pacific in the early hours of Friday the 28th, 5.30 a.m. Eastern in the U.S. It's a 5.30 p.m. local start in Perth. Nice to have a game there outside of the typical late Sunday slot. Please do that more. It's 7.30 p.m. on the Eastern Seaboard of Australia. And why in the world is this the game to be put on Fox Sports 1? as opposed to Gold Coast and Hawthorne, which is going on at the same time. Are there that many Eagles fans in the U.S.? I would hope so. Haven't really gotten to talk to many of them yet. If so, would love to talk to y'all, and if there are any in the Bay Area, would love to meet up with you. The Eagles under this game at 1-9. and nine. They currently sit in 18th, dead last. Their percentage went up, despite losing by 52. The Bulldogs sit at 5-5. Five and five. They are in 9th. This is the only meeting between the teams this year, but they met twice last year. In fact, the Bulldogs have a three-game winning streak against the Eagles. They played a really fun game in round two at Marvel Stadium, which the Bulldogs ended up winning by seven. They met in an empty Optus Stadium in round 15. Thanks a lot, Mark McGowan. The Dogs crushed the Eagles that time, beating them by 55, 98-43. And it would be fair to expect that sort of outcome again. And that was without the Bulldogs kicking that straight. They kicked 13-20 round 15 last year, and I expect them to put up a similar volume of set shots this time. Even if Shannon Hearn is still out for the Eagles, which looks very likely, and even if Cody Waitman and Fluffball himself, Mitch Wallace, don't play this round. Both have a chance to return Wallace from a foot injury, Waitman from a broken collarbone. Good news for the dogs is that Taylor Duray is likely available, and most importantly, Tim English back after missing the last five rounds, first with a hamstring injury, and then last week, when he had just about recovered from that, got what sounds like a ridiculously bad version of the flu. He should be good to go. Also of note, Jason Johannesson may be playing VFL this week. 
he's recovering from not just that same illness, but also a calf injury. I mentioned Hearn is a long shot to return. However, Josh Kennedy, Josh J. Kennedy, is likely ready to return from his knee injury. He's been one of the few bright spots this year, getting his 700th goal against Richmond in one of the rare moments where the crowd really got into it in that contest. Luke Shuey was subbed out with a back complaint in the back end of last week's contest at Greater Western Sydney. Looks like he should be fine. Sam Petrevsky-Seaton should also be able to return while looking longer term. Dom Sheed is ready to play in the waffle. He has yet to play any competitive matches this year after suffering a syndesmosis injury in the preseason. For the last few weeks, I've constantly asked you, what do the Eagles have to do to make this game successful? Every time they've underwhelmed, I'm not even going to bother asking. This is probably going to be ugly. The Bulldogs are favored by 42 and a half. Go if, over. If this game is close, it's a negative reflection on the Bulldogs rather than a positive one on the Eagles, unless something really improbable happens. Maybe could be a positive reflection on Jeremy McGovern after he had a weak outing last round. Made a couple really simple mistakes that allowed the Giants to get a couple more goals. Again, you're going to have to look for individual signs here. I'll be looking more toward the younger crop. Isaiah Winder had three goals last round. Greg Clark got his first goal. Connor West had some good tackles. It's all going to be individual at this point because I don't think the team has the right identity to begin with, and I'm hoping they move on from Adam Simpson sooner rather than later. I've said that. I hope they announce soon that he's not coming back next year. I'd be fine with him staying through the end of the year if they make that announcement, but the coaching search has got to start soon. I wouldn't be all that surprised if the Bulldogs kind of lay an egg and don't play all that well and win in underwhelming fashion, but they still might cover even doing so. I just don't think this is going to be a particularly good watch. It could be fun if you're someone who embraces a bad game. Or just if you're a Bulldogs fan. I think the other game in this time slot should, at least on paper, be much more compelling. I think, actually, this may be the toughest game to predict the winner of in the entire round. We're finally back in Darwin. Gold Coast hosting Hawthorne, the Suns will be playing back-to-back weeks at TIO Stadium in Marara, just outside of the Darwin Central Business District. As an aside, it's always funny seeing CBD and it not being a weed thing, because anytime you see the term CBD here, it's got to do with cannabis oils and stuff. I'm not sure on the specifics, but it's a weed thing instead of, you know, a business district. Anyway, this game is set to get underway 10 minutes after the other, so if you're trying to keep an eye on both, again, I think this will be the one worth watching, but you'll be able to do some bouncing back and forth at quarter breaks, halftime, etc. It'll be 7.40pm for those of you in Eastern Australia, though Northern Territory is in the same time zone as South Australia, so in Darwin, this game gets underway at 7.10pm. It'll be 2.40am our time, and for those on the East Coast of the United States, it'll be at 5.40. I don't know why this one's not the more widely televised game, but it is available on Fox Soccer Plus HD. Both these teams enter with 4-6 and six records, Suns in 12th, Hawks in 13th. They are separated by one percentage point, and this is the type of game that in past years would have been a matchup that I thought nothing of. 
Two teams that haven't been near the finals in a while. Both are under 500 right now. But I think between the added interest we've taken in the league as a whole, in part from doing this podcast and trying to pay attention to all 18 teams, this is actually a game that I am super hyped up for. The Suns and Hawks were supposed to play at TIO Stadium in round 11 last year as well, but COVID restrictions forced that game to be moved to the SCG and Gold Coast won by 37 points. I remember in 2020, it was one of the few matchups that wasn't shown on an American channel, and I really didn't mind that because both teams were so poor at the time. And while neither team is great right now, as evidenced by their record, both have been fun to watch lately. The Hawks have been one of the more entertaining teams all season with their counterattacking style and with what I think has been tremendous coaching from Sam Mitchell. And the Suns have won two of their last three and didn't look that bad in that loss to the Bulldogs. Before that, they had knocked off a couple of final teams in the Swans and Dockers. In fact, three of Gold Coast's four wins this year are against teams in the top eight, including two in the top four. Meanwhile, two of Hawthorne's wins have come against teams in the eight. Geelong on Easter Monday, and Brisbane last round in Launceston. And that victory against the Lions impressed me for a number of reasons, even though it wasn't the Lions' most disciplined effort. I had a lot of concerns going in about whether Hawthorne were going to be able to keep enough gas in the tank the whole way, especially on the longest and widest ground in the competition, and especially after they had certainly not done that in round six against the Swans, a game that I keep referencing just be blueprint to beating Hawthorne the rest of the way, just outlast them. But maybe also outwit them and outplay them. I know Australians like their survivor as well. Haven't gotten around to watching much of it yet, though that should change soon. And I'm bringing up the ground length because TIO Stadium is the same length as Utah's 175 meters. It is 10 meters narrower. I have a feeling the Suns won't be as prepared to make those longer runs themselves. And with their defense never being that reliable to begin with, and with Rory Thompson having some absolutely terrible luck in getting injured in just his third game back after missing the last three seasons, there's a chance for Mitch Lewis, Chad Wingard, etc. to really expose Gold Coast's back lines. That said, the Suns will have a massive advantage in the center circle Max Lynch has had a ridiculous barrage of injuries. Mitch Cleary tweeted this a few days ago. So far this season, he was concussed in round one, missed round two and three in concussion protocols, missed round four because of COVID. Round five, he had a reaction to a bee sting. And then this week, he had food poisoning in the days leading up to the game and got concussed in the final minutes. I will say, I don't think he's that good of a player, but he has one of the funniest Instagram pages in the entire league. First off, his username is Maximum Lunch. Second, he's got funny cat photos. He's got a really funny profile photo of himself with a bowl cut from when he was a kid. And he just seems like a really funny, goofy guy in general, even if he's not a particularly good Ruckman. So while I was critical of his performance when we broke down the Hawks win over the Lions, I am now officially a Max Lynch fan, at least of Max Lynch, the person. He seems like one of the funniest, most entertaining people in a league full of funny, entertaining people. Now, without him, and with Ned Reeves likely still out as well, it looks like Ruck duties will go to Jacob Koshitsky, who doesn't really profile as one to begin with. They may recall Jackson Callow to assist in that regard, but they may just decide to cut their losses and try to completely outwork Gold Coast in the clearance game. 
Tom Mitchell did a very good job at that last round, as did Jai Newcomb. And even with the Suns having a pretty loaded midfield themselves, Tuke Miller, Matt Rowell, Noah Anderson, they've been a bit of a letdown at times in clearances, and Rowell has not seen nearly enough of the ball. Last week, he had two more tackles than touches. Eight tackles, good. Six disposals, yikes. One of the things that makes this game so compelling is that there are distinct areas in which each team has very pronounced advantages, and yet you would think the overall outcome should be a pretty close game unless one team exploits that deficiency way more than the other, or perhaps if they patch up their issues, whether that be Gold Coast patching up their defense, Hawthorne finding a way to overcome that ruck instability. I wonder, even though he's on the skinny side, as most South Sudanese are, could CJ maybe take a couple bounces? He can run pretty much anywhere, but I feel like he's a player that's too valuable in that role to put him in a contest against substantially bigger players like that. I think you keep him in his comfortable spot in the back lines. You don't change a good thing. You don't change something that has been providing so much energy and good movement. I think just cutting your losses is the best way to go here. It's also an injury risk, and we've seen just how much better the Hawks play with him involved. They're 4-2 and two with him and 0-4 and without him, and that's not a complete coincidence. The Hawks will also be without Jack Gunston for at least a week, so I'd expect Kaczynski and Mitch Lewis to get even more involved in some marks inside 50. Maybe some more opportunities for Dylan Moore as well. Beyond the first half, maybe? Hey, he scored in the second half last week. Accidents happen. Chad Wingard's also done a nice job lately. He's kind of a given there, which is why I wanted to highlight some of the others. Connor McDonald was managed last round. He may also return. We'll also note that the Suns will be without Jai Ferrer because he will be in concussion protocol. This is definitely an extremely hard game to judge. I expect the Suns will try to get to their key forwards a decent amount. Sam Frost can't guard both Mabior Chul and Levi Casbolt. I expect CJ to draw on whichever one Frost isn't on at any given time, though obviously he'll have some room to move elsewhere. The Suns are favored by two and a half, and I would be more inclined to put money on Hawthorne winning this based on some of the positives I've seen from them last round, but I'm far from confident in making that assertion. What about you, Ethan? This is such a hard game to predict, but I would say a more appropriate line would probably be Hawthorne by two and a half. But again, this game is so up in the air. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I have no idea how it's going to shape up. I just hope it's close and engaging the whole way through because this should be a really, really good matchup. I find it more likely that Hawthorne would run away with this one than Gold Coast. And I'd find that more likely 10 weeks from now as well when they match up at Utah Stadium was concerned that the nature of Hawthorne's game under Sam Mitchell might make them lose some of that second home oval advantage, but looks like it's still there. There's only one game at Marvel Stadium this round, and it's the first of the Sunday games. It'll still be Saturday night here in the U.S., of course. You probably are aware of that at this point, unless this is both your first time listening and you don't know how time zones work, in which case we've probably really confused you a bunch of times. It's St. Kilda taking on North Melbourne. This one gets underway at 1.10 p.m. Sunday local time. In the U.S., it'll be Saturday night at 11.10 on the East Coast, 8.10 p.m. on the West Coast. 
Makes sense that this game is only a Fox Soccer Plus HD game because it shouldn't be close. St. Kilda are 7-3. They're in 5th place. Their win last round over Adelaide wasn't super convincing. A couple players really saved them there. North Melbourne, 1-9, 17th place. And their win was over what you could call a team, I guess? I don't know. A very hastily assembled one. And one that played pretty admirably considering the circumstances. You probably have to be a really hardcore footy fan in order to be willing to go back and watch the round two game that North hosted against the top-up West Coast Eagles. But it was enjoyable in a lot of aspects, just because it was close. They have had some pretty compelling meetings the last couple years. Last year, they also met in round 11 at Marvel Stadium. Empty stadium. Saints won that one by 20, led by 43 after three quarters after a pretty close first half. They also met in an empty Marvel Stadium round one of 2020. That was the second game we ever watched, a game that North won by two points. So this will be their first time playing each other in front of a crowd since 2019. COVID, of course, was the reason for that lack of crowds, and COVID is one of two reasons why Jack Higgins is unavailable this round. He he is in double protocols between concussion and COVID. Hunter Clark has had some strong performances in the VFL, and there's been some talk about him getting into the AFL side. Josh Gavlich thinks that Clark may replace Ben Long. He doesn't think Dan Butler will be back in. Even though he had an okay game in terms of possessions in the VFL, he was inaccurate. There's been a lot happening at North the last couple weeks. You just do the injuries. From an injury standpoint... We don't know if Curtis Taylor is going to be ready to go. He's still awaiting results from his rib scan at the time of recording. If he can't go, Jaden Stevenson would be a logical candidate to return, though maybe they continue to play without him, go with some younger options, find someone else to make a debut. We do know that all six of Aiden Bonner, Eddie Ford, Aaron Hall, Ben Mackay, Jared Pollock, and Phoenix Spicer will not be available this week, but should all be back in the next couple of rounds. Their bye is in round 14. All of them should, assuming they continue on their current trajectory, be ready to go by the time they resume after said bye. That said, the concerns at North Melbourne are much bigger right now than anything you could find on an injury report, in part because the injury report week to week doesn't matter that much for a team that's this far out of things, and in part because there's just a lot of drama at Arden Street altogether. This cycle of off-field issues began after the Round 8 game. The Kangaroos traveled back home from Perth after getting shellacked by Fremantle. And then Jason Horn Francis went home to South Australia for Mother's Day. He ended up missing Round 9 with hamstring tightness. And he was cautioned by the club after traveling interstate without telling them. There's a debate surrounding how much of a story this really is. Mother's Day is a logical time to want to go home for that. But from a more formal kind of bureaucratic standpoint, the clubs have to notify the anti-doping agency, ASADA, of player movements. And so there's a practical side to Horn Francis being warned as well. On top of that, it's just proper to tell your team, hey, I'm going to be gone. That's kind of universal in all sports. And maybe Horn Francis not doing that is a red flag in terms of player management relations. Not exactly sure there. Of course, all the South Australians have been jumping on this and saying he wants to come home. 
None of the draft class from North Melbourne have signed contracts beyond their base two-year deals, so I guess have Adam Crows in power if you really want. The bigger story, though, is that three of North Melbourne's key recruiters resigned last week. Actually, any midseason move like this is going to gain headlines, and with this happening before the midseason draft, it's especially noteworthy. Their national recruiting manager, Mark Finnegan, is leaving Arden Street after 17 years. He's reportedly joining Hawthorne. And list manager Glenn Luff and national recruiting officer Ben Berthesel are also on their way out. Sam Edmund reports that the three are, quote, frustrated at the club over its management, end quote. That reminds me of a dysfunctional NFL team. It sounds a lot like some of the things that have been going on with the Raiders, where Someone new quits basically every day because they're so screwed up from the top down. And that doesn't reflect well on North Melbourne's leadership altogether. I don't have anywhere near as much familiarity with their leadership. Other than that, club president Sonia Hood followed us back on Twitter. Miss Hood, if you're listening to this, thanks for the follow. And we wish you the best of luck. Hopefully you guys right the ship. But these are all just negative signs that point most likely to a massive overhaul in terms of management. There's been a steady stream of concern around David no- around David Noble and his treatment of players ever since some of his spray, as you guys say, in Australia of the team after their 108-point loss to the Brisbane Lions in round three. That was Noble's former team, so he was probably feeling extra drive over that one. And there's been talk about a divide between the players in the coaching ranks since and who knows how far up or down that's permeated. There's a whole lot of speculation going on here, but it's a very notable thing to discuss around North Melbourne when they already don't have many positives going for them on field. And the developments out of this could have some league-wide ramifications, not just in terms of executive movement, but maybe in terms of player movement with what the new list manager might try to do, if David Noble might have more of a hand in things himself, considering his past experience. Or maybe if relationships have soured with him so much that he won't be there for long. Which, it's funny because I thought he had every reason to light into his team after that performance at Brisbane. And they ended up responding well with how they played against Sydney. But look, the fact is, we considered two good quarters a really good performance from North last week. Granted, it was against the best team in the league. Is 45 and a half points too generous to North Melbourne for this line? Well, here's the thing. Other than the second half against Geelong and the last five minutes against the Crows, the Saints have not played all that well lately. But this is one of those occasions where I think the off-field situation may very well affect the line and the on-field product. This could end up being a blowout even after the Roos showed some promising signs last week because of all the dysfunction within the club. If that game does end up being a blowout, it'll mean we'll be able to turn our attention more quickly towards the 261st meeting between Collingwood and Carlton. This one will be, as always, at the MCG. Now, I think there are a few different ways you could refer to this game. You know, a lot of soccer rivalries are called things like the Eternal Derby, the Derby of the Eternal Enemies. But instead of going with something like that, that's usually what a lot of the rivalries in the Balkans are called. I'm going to go instead with a Brazilian approach. Now, if you follow soccer in Brazil at all, you may know that the biggest rivalry there is between Flamengo and Fluminense, and that rivalry is called Fla-Flu. 
So going with the abbreviations here, and since Collingwood are listed first as the home team for this game, we're going to call it Cole Carr. And speaking of this being the 261st all-time meeting, the ledger is completely even. 128 wins, 128 losses, and four ties each. It's just an incredible statistic and one that has amazed me ever since it got even at the end of last season. The bounce for this one will be at 10.20 p.m. Pacific time on Saturday the 28th, 1.20 a.m. Eastern time on Sunday the 29th in the U.S. in the U.S. And you can watch that on Fox Sports 2. Very thankful that this will be on normal TV. It's a 3.20 p.m. bounce at the G. Collingwood enter this one at 5-5 five five in 10th place. Carlton are 8-2. They sit in third, well behind the other 8-2 team, Brisbane, on percentage. But this will be the first time in at least a few years that Carlton really come into this game as the favorite. And it'll be the first time that these teams meet with some of these big personalities, including Jack Ginnivan getting his first taste of this rivalry for the Magpies. These teams play twice just about every year. Of the two meetings last year, the away team, technically speaking, won both, with Collingwood winning in round two by 21. They met again in an empty MCG in round 18, a game which the Blues won by 29. This is definitely the most I've looked forward to a Collingwood-Carlton game. Granted, this is only the fourth one we've had since taking interest in the sport, but it's nice that both these teams are relevant. The Blues back in the conversation as real contenders. Collingwood, middle of the pack, exceeding expectations in a lot of regards, playing compelling football just about every week. It's my belief that a rivalry like this that's considered the premier rivalry in the sport, similar to something like Yankees-Red Sox, it's going to be on national TV and shove down audiences' throats whether or not the teams are good. So in that sense, it's good that these teams are good. Although I would love if the Yankees and Red Sox both suck forever. For the record, Yankees-Red Sox is not the best rivalry in baseball. It's Giants-Dodgers, but the national media's fixation with Yankees-Red Sox makes this a worthy comparison. Yeah, one thing that's common between the United States and Australia is an East Coast slant in the national media. Well, let's also note that an even higher percentage of the population of Australia lives on the East Coast than does in the United States. Of course. And this talk about the U.S. and Australia brings me to Mason Cox, the best of both worlds in some respects. He suffered a compound finger dislocation early on last round. That was what allowed Ollie Henry to enter the game. However, there is no ligament damage from that dislocation, so he may be able to play this week and match up with Tom DeConing alongside Darcy Cameron. Without Mark Pittenut, I don't know if there's really a matchup for Cox. So I would totally understand if Collingwood is really conservative with him from an injury standpoint, because I just don't see someone for him to line up against. Maybe they look at it as he could create a matchup problem, draw attention away from some of the other talls, but I don't know if there's someone to have him defend. In that case, maybe Aiden Begg comes back into the side, or they just play neither of them. Just let Cameron handle center duties. And that's definitely plausible considering they have to make room for Ollie Henry one way or the other. He was a medical sub last week, but was the first medical sub in its current form to kick four goals. Jordan Ruffett is returning to contact in his, as he continues to rehab from his finger injury. 
And after some speculation that he might be in the side earlier in the week, it looks like he'll be missing again. In terms of who does end up making way for Henry, Josh Gablish, a name that we've mentioned a lot because he wrote about a number of teams in the in the mix for this week on the AFL website. Gablish thinks that Tyler Brown may make way if Mason Cox is able to play. I think Darcy Moore is one of the premier defenders in the AFL, and I think a lot of people would agree. But he's going to have his hands full this week, and I thought he struggled some in that game against the Bulldogs two weeks ago. So I think his performance goes a long way to dictating how this game goes for Collingwood. Importantly, last week he had good fullback support, Braden Maynard keeping up his form, Jeremy Howe, even though he does venture toward the middle of the field a lot, still very solid in the back lines, even if people only associate him with his spectacular marks that he takes. I find it likely that Moore will end up being the one to take on Charlie Curnow most of the time. With Harry Mackay out, Curnow is the biggest show in town in terms of Carlton's forward 50. A lot of other players have been getting chances, but Curnow has gotten the most of them. There's a reason Kernow leads the Coleman race by a couple goals. Mackay's knee injury is going to keep him out for a few more weeks, but Jack Martin may return from his calf injury. However, he may only end up being the sub because Patty Dow's recent form in the VFL begs his inclusion into the 22. It's likely going to be Jack Carroll who pays the price and is omitted. We also learned last week that defender Oscar McDonald was ruled out for the season with a stress fracture in his back. Carlton does have a couple great shutdown defenders still, Jacob Wiedering, the main one, but they can definitely be exposed at times. And if Ginevan can get on some good runs, if Jack Crisp and Taylor Adams can move through the middle, the absence of McDonald and Mitch McGovern could definitely be felt, especially if the Blues go like they often do and falter in the second half. The Blues are favored by nine and a half for this game. They will also be meeting in round 23 at the MCG, of course. I love the idea of these teams playing the final round because whether or not the game has any implications in finals or anything like that, even though it should this year, it's not a game that either team will take lightly regardless of the circumstances surrounding it. Thankfully, with the importance of percentage as a tiebreaker, it's rare that going into the final round, placements are locked in for both teams. So there should always be motivation going into it, but you won't need anything supplemental when you've got the biggest rivalry in the sport on tap. Unless you're Orazio Fantasia, I don't think you can really call Port Adelaide versus Essendon a rivalry in any sense of the word, but they're going to be starting 80 minutes after call car gets underway, so that'll be 11.40 p.m. Pacific on the 28th, 2.40 a.m. Eastern the 29th for our American viewers. It's 4.10 p.m. local in Adelaide, so 4.40 p.m. in the Eastern States. This will be on Fox Sports 1 in the U.S. It's going to be one of those rare times where you have two AFL games on American TV at the same time. Hopefully it'll get good viewership and help convince Fox or whoever gets the next deal to keep airing these games on their main networks. Port Adelaide under at 4-6. and six. They sit in 11th. Essendon are 2-8. They're in 16th. They are the only team with a 2-8 record. These teams met in round two last year. It was the home opener for the Power, a game they won by 54. In fact, the Power have won three straight meetings. I remember in 2020, Charlie Dixon having a couple ridiculous plays in their matchup. Had a huge fake out on one of his goals. 
and then took a one-handed mark that I really think should have been in the conversation on Brownlow night. I think it was after that game that I made my comparison between Dixon and Hall of Fame NFL receiver Calvin Johnson. Just between the size and the raw talent, I think it's one that honestly makes sense. And if he does play this week, I think he would be a player that American viewers would really get excited to watch. Dixon kicked three goals, three behinds in the Sandville last week. He's been building up to a return. The only question now is, does he do it before their bye? If he does get in, who comes out of the lineup? It could be a pretty significant name. David Zeta from Fox Sports thinks it could be Mitch Georgiatis. I think that would be ridiculous. Nathan Schmuck suggests Jeremy Finlayson. I think it would be someone far less prominent. Maybe Kane Farrell? I think it's hard to call anyone in that forward line not prominent, but Farrell has been in and out a little bit this season. It won't be an easy choice for Ken Hinckley and list management to make, but it's one they'll have to make on the other side of the bye regardless. So why not do it now? I wonder if maybe instead they take one of their forwards, move him further back, and instead omit someone like Lockie Jones. He's had a decent amount of time as the sub, so that would make sense. Maybe you'd move Farrell further back then? I think that's entirely possible. I just think this forward group is too good to have some of these players taken out of the lineup. As I mentioned just a little bit ago, Horacio Fantasia may return from his quad injury and what a time would be for him to do it against his old club. There's a chance that Riley Bonner returns from his ankle injury as well. And there's a chance that Port is just able to rip this game wide open because Mason Redmond was suspended for striking Dion Prestia in the Dreamtime match at the G. I think even with Redmond, there's a good chance Port would break this game open. Redmond's great at moving the ball, advancing play forward, but in terms of actual defense, Essendon just don't have a lot. They should be getting Jordan Ridley back from COVID protocols, and Jai Caldwell is probable after recovering from his shoulder injury. But look, this, on paper, should be a lopsided game. I think Port Adelaide bounced back from their clunker last week very nicely, and I think they take care of business rather easily. Seems like Matt Gelfi's going to be unavailable after his hamstring injury last week. We'll see what Dylan Shield looks like from his calf injury. There's also a chance that Harry Jones makes his season debut. He's played one game in the VFL, and with their forward situation being as dire as it is, Maybe he already gets the call. But I was thinking that Redmond's absence will be particularly notable because they'll lack that movement. It'll be harder for them to get out of their back half. And with all the forward talent that Port have, they'll just be able to get entries faster and pilot on the Bombers more easily. This could be one of those games that I don't think much of that ends up being way closer than expected, but I just can't see Essendon pulling out a major upset here. I think the early season version of Port Adelaide, there's a good chance they lose this game. I think the version that had showed up the prior four weeks is much more likely to turn up for this game, and I think they're going to be just fine. Port Adelaide favored by 34 and a half. Don't have any problem with the line could go a lot higher, but with the ins and outs being uncertain for both sides, I get why it hasn't been pushed even further. These teams meet twice this year. They will also be playing round 22 at Marvel Stadium, so that makes five of the nine matchups this week that'll repeat later in the season. That's just about it for everything we have to say about round 11. There's always a chance there are some surprising ins and outs when lineups are announced, and now that we're 
living in the same building. We're capable of doing one of those instant Listomania episodes if needed. Over the next few weeks, you'll be seeing more episodes from us altogether as during the bye weeks with fewer games to preview and summarize, we'll be able to do some mid-season progress reports. And we're also going to have a fun episode where we rank this year's Indigenous Jumpers as well as All 18 Club songs. Ethan has already done his rankings of both. I'm going to wait until this weekend because we'll probably see most of the Sir Doug Nichols Jumpers again. And just me being as musical as I am, I've just been thinking a lot about my club song rankings, and I'm probably going to keep moving around some songs until right before we end up recording it. Look forward to sharing my opinions on that, talking a bit of music as it relates to the footy. Music was kind of my gateway into some of my first interactions with fellow AFL fans through my posting of some trombone covers before the 2020 Grand Final on r slash AFL. I did the Fox footy theme near the start of last season, which is our intro and outro music. And I've kept up with doing the club songs for the teams of the Grand Final as well. I expect to end up re-recording Grand Old Flag, but who in the world is going to be the other one? Piecing together who's the second best team was one of the challenges after round 10. We'll see if that picture gets any clearer this week. As we said during our round 10 recap, over the last few weeks, we've constantly been left with more questions than answers. We'll probably have a thing or two to say in terms of impromptu power rankings or thoughts on just how far the other teams are away from Melbourne or Narm as they still are. Love that they renamed themselves. Would be cool to see other clubs do the same. You can follow our thoughts throughout the season and off season, I guess, but we haven't had the account during the off season, really. At Americans Footy on Twitter. I'm personally at BenjaminHK01. Ethan's at Castle Media. That's Castle with a K. Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is at cat named Brian on Instagram. And you are all at whatever handles you are all. I'm not going to be a creep and read them all off. That said, if you bother us to follow back or just say something interesting, we will follow you back. We hope to talk with you throughout the weekend. Should be a really fun round. Catch you again soon. Thank you.